0: Back to
1: the bin. Hello everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro, and that is not Scott Gardner. that is not Dave Pascarella, and it is certainly not Dr. Bill Robinson. It is Professor Allen. How you doing, Professor?
0: Oh, glad to be back on the show. Always a pleasure. Yeah, you know, I, I do sense that you're trying to keep me away. Bill and Gene. Dave, and Scott, even Chris and Jean. Are, are are you afraid we're going to try to team up and overthrow you? I, I think somehow you're going to try
1: and buy out all the back to the bin stock and have <laughs> a, a, a takeover of this company.
0: But
1: I've been noticing the prices go going up on the shares. It's only—it's almost not a penny stock
0: anymore. Don't and don't worry, Paul. Even if you're not on any of the shows, you'll still be producing every single one of them. Worst case scenario. This is how you progress from intern to boss. <laughs> no, seriously. I—I I, uh, obviously in enjoy the shows i'm a fan of yours i want you to keep <sighs> podcasting really as long as possible as long as you stay in the game it keeps me from being the oldest podcaster i know,
1: I know. <laughs> that's why i'm happy when when, when uh, kirk granfield appears on uh, third degree burn because he's older than me <laughs> there you he's go precious, there are precious perfect. few people older than me <laughs> So it's nice it's almost bin. it's almost like, and I'm going to pull back the curtain for a moment. Professor Allen and I just mm-hmm. finished recording an episode of the Quarter Bin Podcast, which may or may yeah. not be simulcast on the Back to the Bins Network, which, by network, I mean the one show. Um, but uh, you know, we 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 did a lot of our just general talk about what's going on and everything in that one. So uh, I, I'm going to jump right into the the game here. The two of us are doing... Yeah, I mean, one of the books came out in 1986, but these are really two old-timey type books. Yes, they are. Uh, they're, they're both licensed properties. And it's some, there's something to be said, and I think I, I want to just talk a little bit in general about licensed properties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's two types, generally, that you see there's There's the ones where they're taking either a science fiction story or a dramatic story of some sort, and they they try to build on it and give you new stuff. and I do think those have a good chance of success, quite frankly, things like Star Wars and Star Trek and you know and, and obviously, over the years, there is varying degrees of success and failure on both. Uh, and I'd I say you know the Star, Star Trek ones, all you have to do is look to the gold key issues to see. They're not all gems. Uh, you know, there's the occasional good one in there, but they're really, you know, on a the whole, they're, they're pretty poorly thought out. Uh, whereas, yeah. you know, Star, Star Wars, there've been some great runs and there've been some subpar runs. So, you know, they, those, like any other comic book property, I think, are dependent on the creative team and how much they're allowed to spread their wings and, and what they do with it. We're looking at a different type of licensed property than that today. We're looking at two comedy things. Uh, I have an old issue, and uh, full disclosure, it was an issue
0: sent to me by Professor Allen
1: (laughs) of The Adventures of Jerry Lewis.
0: I'm sorry. In in full disclosure, it was an issue sent to me by Tom Panneries. This is what we call call the hashtag comic book circle of life.
1: Okay. Well, but mine got put into a bag with a board and into my collection.
0: That's right. Exactly. Uh,
1: uh, And and Professor Allen's going to look at an issue of the Honeymooners from 1986. Uh, And that one, you know, we'll talk a little bit about because they give you an introduction on that as to where it's uh, from and all of that.
0: Uh, But I find... Before we get started on the issues, I do have a story about comic book licensing. Okay, and well, I wasn't going to go right is... into the
1: issues just yet, oh, but no.
0: okay. Well, you give us a story, and then
1: I'll go to the point that I was going to make.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just, just don't sue me. That's all I'm asking. Just don't sue me. But I heard, uh, I heard uh, uh, Chuck Dixon uh, tell the story, and at one point he had pitched because. Remember, there was a heyday in the '90s and early 2000s of Batman crossing over with every licensed property possible, and and, um, Dixon had what he thought was the perfect pitch, which was Batman Dirty Harry, and which I believe was also a Warner Brothers property. So the license was no was no problem at the time. He'd done a pitch, maybe even part of a script. There were sketches that were done. It was moving up the chain on uh, both sides of, of the company. Approval, approval, approval. And the last stage, the place that it was uh, that it was denied, was when it got to Clint Eastwood, who did not want his likeness drawn into a comic book, which is a real that. shame. But That's I can understand right, where he, yeah. he might
1: be protective of his image to that point. Yeah. Uh, and we did do, a while back, we did a uh, a diehard issue. And I don't know that it did Bruce Willis any favors, to be honest with yeah. you. Yeah. It wasn't a bad issue, if I remember right. I thought it was okay. But, you know, again, I don't know if it, if it had, I don't know that it hurt him, but I, I don't know that it yeah. made him proud either. So yeah, yeah. I can so, understand so, so the, might
0: yeah, with that. Yeah, yeah. The point is, there are many, many issues and difficulties in in licensing. It's just not as easy as we wish it would be sometimes. Now, but as as I was starting to
1: build up to, uh, I do think that in dramatic series or an action series or things of that nature, it's easier to adapt that. Storytelling technique to a comic book and have it be, uh, you know, a a viable series. And the funny thing is, because we call comics funny books, uh, and that was their, you know, the kind of their origin, I do find that there is more difficulty in doing a good adaptation of a comedy uh, property. And we're going to cover two comedy properties today. And I do, I would say I did see some of that some of those pitfalls in both of these mm-hmm. books, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I find that the written word for comedy is often more difficult than, uh, you know, than, than actual live action. In particular, I'm going to say with the adventures of Jerry Lewis that we're doing, a lot of his comedy was based upon his physical, uh, you know, actions and the, you know, the voice in- inflections that he would do, and you lose all of that in a comic book. All you have is the absurd situation for him, so it, it is much, much more difficult to pull it off. Now that said, back in the fifties and the sixties, these books were all over the place. Oh, I mean, you know, you had Bob, Bob Hope, you had Jerry Lewis, you had, uh, I can't even think, Sergeant Bilko had a comic. You know, there, there were a whole bunch of different properties like this. Uh, and Charlton had a ton of, you know, versions of different things, different TV shows and cartoon series and whatever that they would adapt for the comics. So, you know, it's surprising that I'm so critical of them, but maybe (laughs) just maybe that has to do with the fact that these books were not written
0: for people of a certain age. And, and also, um, Yes, I, I certainly think that is true. Uh, I, I also think that it's okay to say that the media are different and different types of stories, different types of, of, of uh, presentations are going to work better as a movie, as prose, as comic book, as a miniseries, you know, whatever it is. There's there, Not every story is going to be equally successful in every possible media adaptation, the format. True, agreed. Um, it's interesting, just
1: you know, jumping ahead a little bit, reading that introduction on the Honeymooners book, uh, I, there were two stories in the book. One of them, I think they said, was actually an unproduced script that was yes. actually meant for the Honeymooners, yes. so that's, that's an interesting concept in and of itself. And, mm-hmm. and I kept as I read through it, I kept trying to picture in my mind, which I did anyway right. for both stories, but I kept yeah. trying to picture the act- actual actors uh, doing the parts and how they might portray them and try to to get my humor to some extent from that. There's also a notation that, you know, at the time, uh, what's his name, Jackie Gleason was still alive and he had, uh, you know, he was able to oversee it and, and approve, he had final approval over the art. Right. I don't know how much attention he actually paid to it. Right. If he had, you know, an assistant look at it, if he looked at it, I have no clue, but he did have some quality control on that book, which is another
0: interesting thing. Yeah, interesting.
1: Now, I don't know that Jerry Lewis actually had any care whatsoever about the comic book that bore his name. Uh, um, I, but he, I, he, I, I don't know.
0: See, I I mean I I certainly believe he cared if the check cashed. That I
1: would, you know, I would agree with that. I, I mean, I've heard all sorts of stories. About Jerry okay, Lewis just okay. Yeah. And, and his his attitude in life and his attitude towards people, and <laughs> you know, I am I'm, I'm a big fan of the Gilbert Gottfried uh, podcasts, you know, which mm-hmm. unfortunately we lost Gilbert last year, uh, but they still rerun a lot of them. And when Jerry Lewis comes up in different interviews that he does, he says, "Well, I have the pleasure of saying he was always nice to me." <laughs> you know, that's, i think that, that's the reality with jerry lewis i think you know it, it depends yeah. on who you are yeah. uh but anyway uh as the guest on back to the bins uh i give even if you are going to one day own the show uh you don't own it yet but i will give you the <laughs> option of which book you'd like to cover first uh,
0: i can go first sure and uh I uh, think I pick this one because a- after I sent you the Jerry Lewis, I th- I th- I think my comment was, well, here's another collection for you to start. I'm glad to hear that one made it into the actual actual uh, uh, long boxes, so I mission accomplished on my end. Uh, and I picked this one. I actually picked it up shortly after uh, after sending you that one, and I th- obviously thought it would it would certainly uh, go well together. So as you so often do, you turned it into a themed episode. And uh, so this is the Honeymooners number one. Uh, also, it's an independent. So our independent is going first here. This is from Lodestone Publishing. Cover dated October 1986. In I guess this, this is the heart of the Independent boom i don't know where you were in comics in this era, Paul, or if you looked at the firsts and the eclipses and all of those that that wave of comics this was the point when I was too old to be interested in comic
1: books, and it wasn't until I got older that I became interested again
0: <laughs> exactly well, this was my college years so this this was perfect uh, time for you know n- nothing but time to hang out at the at at, at the old, old comic shop so no uh, adult responsibilities yet so uh, but though Lodestone and the Honeymooners was not one that I picked up uh, uh, back then I did see that this one this run did nine issues total um, and then it moved think to another publisher for another dozen or so so uh the cover features a photo of jackie gleason and audrey uh, meadows portraying ralph and alice cramden in a pretty sweet adorable way and i guess the first question paul is what do we think of photo covers
1: i'm not a fan of photo covers to be totally honest i i you know it's a comic book it's not a photo novel those yeah. had their place. Uh, I know, you know, Chris Honeywell was always a big fan of those. I have a, I have a couple of books of Marx brothers and Avenue Costello photo now photo movies or whatever you want to call right. them. Uh, and, and they are more interesting to me in nostalgia than they are in reality. <laughs> yeah. uh, at this point, cause I enjoyed them when I was young and when, you know, we didn't have VCRs and, and I couldn't just yeah. watch the movies whenever I wanted. Uh, you know, it's almost like the ViewMaster of books. Uh, you know, but 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 for comic books, I want to see comic. I generally want to see comic
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, artists renderings of these people.
0: And it 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 is going to make for an interesting discussion in five or ten minutes when we attempt to give grades to the art uh, on the cover. But spoilers—that's coming up soon. Uh, there are two stories in here. I'm going to briefly synopsize both of them, and then. You can figure out a way to grade uh, the whole issue. And first up is the home game, scripted by comics veteran Robert Lauren Fleming with art by Vince Musakia. Norton bursts in on Alice, excited that he managed to get tickets to the final game of the World Series between the Dodgers and the Yankees. He has great seats there in Yankee Stadium. Unfortunately, the game is going to be played in brooklyn Ebbets field uh, the following morning ralph begs alice for some money to buy actual tickets to the actual game at the actual stadium but to no avail fortunately ralph has a plan unfortunately it involves the sewers but it, it all works out sort of because the two of them are mistaken for the opera singer and piano player slated to do the national anthem Ralph does end up belting out the song, but their lack of tickets is going to be a problem until Alice and Trixie arrive with four tickets and they can all stay for the game because Alice, baby, you're the greatest. The end. Let me just roll on to the second one uh, also. Uh, We have Ralph's Sweet Tooth. Uh, adapted and illustrated by Vince Musakia and, and as you pointed out Paul I I I noted the word adapted there and a little bit of digging that this was uh actually an episode I thought which had aired is, is what I saw in 1954 um that was back when you were in 5th grade I think um, <laughs> no I was I was in college but... by then <laughs> So the episode which I did not watch is supposedly available on Pluto TV and Tubi for free. So this technically is a summary of the TV episode. Uh, uh, actually, I was able to find online, which technically I know Paul, I, I know Scott does not like using pre you know, pre pre-pre-written synopses for comic book stories. Technically, it's a pre-canned synopsis for a television episode. I believe that's okay. And Paul, you're my lawyer. Back me up. Okay. So.
1: I'll back you up on this. You use your pre-can synopsis.
0: (laughs) Ralph gets chosen for a commercial for a candy bar company that sponsors an opera show for TV. He has some problems learning his lines, but the biggest problem comes when he develops a toothache before the big night when he Bites into the candy bar during the live broadcast. He winds up writhing in pain all over the stage. The end, meaning the end of Ralph Cramden's TV career. <laughs> it's a little
1: bit of a sparse synopsis. <laughs> uh,
0: we, we also have on the inside front cover, a nice little uh, note from the publisher. We have an interview with uh, Joyce Randolph, who played Trixie. Um, and last time I checked, she is still with us, a young at heart, ninety-eight years old.
1: Now, back in probably nineteen eighty-six, maybe nineteen eighty-five, when uh, when they first came out with the you know put in quotations lost episodes of the honeymooners, mm-hmm. uh, they didn't air them. They didn't air them right away. But what they did was they said they originally they said they found I think it was six episodes, and they. Aired them, I think every two weeks they would do a different one, at the Museum of Broadcast in Manhattan. Oh wow! Uh, oh, and God. and it was a relatively inexpensive uh, donation requested to right. go. You know, it was it's a museum of sorts, but you know they had a you'd have to wait online and you'd go in and they had a little viewing room and they showed I think two episodes each time and we went there twice to see them, and the first time we went while we were waiting online. Joyce Randolph came over and greeted every person on the oh, line personally. Wow. Uh, wow. And she, she was an absolute doll. She was so nice. She signed autographs for everybody. Uh, we, you know, it was pre-cell phone day, so we didn't have a camera to take a picture with her, which we absolutely would have if we had been able to. Uh, but it was it was just a great experience. And she was just so incredibly nice that it really, really stood out to me.
0: Oh, that's a great story. Now, a little, not to, just, uh... I'm sorry,
1: just to add to that a little bit, around the same time as this, <clears throat> me and my very good friend, Paul Smith, who is on the uh, Facebook page and often puts mm-hmm. things up, and he and I have been friends since fifth grade. Uh, he and I went to the Ralph Convention in Manhattan, uh, which is Ralph is a honeymooners club. Uh, and we went and we saw. We we saw. You know, we we went to the convention itself, which you know was all different sorts of things. But then they also had a uh, a live adaptation of an episode. I could not tell you which one it was. Oh, that's great. But They had they had uh, Art Carney's son playing Norton. They had Captain Lou Albano playing Ralph. <laughs> they had,
0: I you know don't I, remember, I can see that.
1: I think it may. I think it was a soap opera actress playing Alice, mm-hmm. and Joyce Randolph played Trixie. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And they did an, right. uh, you know, an adaptation of. of uh, I don't know if it was a whole episode or a scene or whatever. Right. But I do remember just oh, getting a big kick fun. out of that.
0: Absolutely. So that's and that's now,
1: at the, that's around the time this book came out. Both of those things.
0: Now, my next statement is not a knock at your advanced years. But I think I may be just a hair too young to have watched this, even in you know in the in the reruns. But I am sure that I've watched every episode of the Flintstones multiple times, so I've kind of watched the Honeymooners.
1: Mm-hmm. I'd say i say yeah, that's that's pretty much a, a good adaptation of it. But uh, I mean, there's only the 39 original you know episodes or. Right you know whatever you want to call them
0: and, uh, and wasn't it that the the lost episodes were on like the live jackie gleason show or something like that There was some one was uh, it was they were live broadcast which is why they were feared lost
1: and they, well they, you know the jackie gleason show at the time would have different skits right. you know he, he had different characters that he would play there was the lost soul there was joe the bartender uh and there was, you know, the, the Honeymooners was also on there. And the skits would run varying lengths. I think the show itself was an hour. Okay. Uh, so sometimes there'd be a 10-minute Honeymooners skit in there. And sometimes the, the hour would be dedicated to a Honeymooners show. And they were feared lost. They were, I think, on kinescope. Uh, okay, You know, not on film or whatever. And then they were found in some vault somewhere and... You know, cleaned up, I guess, as much as they could at the time. And they started airing them. And uh, I've found, I don't think I've watched every one of the Lost Ones because I haven't never found the forum where they just play Mm -hmm. them in a way where I'd see each one. Uh, But they are varied in length and quality. Some of them are very, very (laughs) funny and they're worthy of being put put with the original 39 that everybody loves. And some of them you might as well never see. Yeah.
0: Uh, Again, you know, some of them, they were. Sounds like they were intended to be, you know, maybe a 10-minute segment of a 60-minute show. And so it's a little, not quite throwaway, but, you know, filling the time. And then my understanding is I think there were
1: a couple of these shorter episodes that they did that they eventually resurrected and made them, you know, full episodes of the regular show. So, you know, there's some repetition that goes on.
0: So so were, were, were you able to visualize that second story as a, as as a potential episode? Yeah.
1: Mostly. Yeah. You know, I I don't think it would be one of the better episodes. (laughs) And and there's a lot that's a lot that's just lost on, you know, presentation. First of all, you know, the honeymooners was famous for uh, you know, Jackie Gleason not wanting to rehearse, and they'd have a stand-in for him in the rehearsals because he didn't want to do it. Uh, so because of that, he wanted to be fresh and whatever, you know, or he was just lazy, yeah. he didn't want to rehearse, whatever it was. But anyway, when when they actually did the episodes, they didn't. When they made a mistake, they didn't go back and say, "Okay, let's do that over." They would right. just, you know, it was, it was just keep going. So, you you know, you could see when you watch it, some of them are very, very obvious where they made a mistake and they decide to, to throw a little improvisation line in there or whatever and change it. Uh, and you lose all of that with this. Right. Uh, and, and you're also losing, you know, again, you know, much like I started to say with Jerry Lewis, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But much like that, you know, a lot of Art Carney and Jackie Gleason's comedy was physical. You know, the way they presented it, the way you know they would physically move, especially Arcani, the way you would move. That's that's not fair. Both of them, the way they would move, really. Uh, and, I, and just I was the way that's in
0: terms that's yeah, that's the what I was thinking. A lot of it is the intonation, especially um, you know, Jackie Gleason getting loud and rambunctious and boisterous and excited and angry. And it seems like obviously, you know, you 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 do your best to portray that in a still drawing, but it's not the same as an actor's, no, comic actor's performance. It, yeah, it just and and there's,
1: there's no way of capturing that. Yeah. So, yeah. so you're going to lose that whenever you're going to have somebody who, who their comedy is based upon the way that they act and the way that they, you know, in their inflections and all. Uh, I got to say, I, I had a real tough time picturing uh, Norton in the pair of flowered shorts, <laughs> that they have this one I, yeah. I i really have a tough time picturing that especially since the show was in black and white it it, it doesn't have the same okay. feeling to me i do like the artwork in this book though i think it's it's just comic enough yeah. to, to have an amusing quality to
0: it i uh, i think yeah I, I i i i do think that the mouths are exaggerated just enough the eyes are exaggerated just enough not to be cartoony in the negative sense, but to attempt to portray some of that humor and emotion as, as, as best as you can with a, with the drawing.
1: And, and even with being cartoony, it never loses the feeling of who's who. So that that's something to be said for
0: that. That's good. Yep. Yep.
1: So, you know, it, Tim, to me, it's... it's I, 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 almost, I feel bad almost using these words, but I'm seeing this book as a noble failure. <laughs> like It's a real, <laughs> real good attempt at it, but I'm not sure how you could do it where you'd be successful.
0: Yeah, it's almost a hopeless quality to it. Yeah. It's a, it's, but it's, it's a, it, it's a tough ask.
1: See, now, now and, the, and there's a difference here between the two, and we, we can maybe talk about this when we get to Jerry mm-hmm. Lewis. But Jerry Lewis in the 50s and 60s when his comic was coming out would have appealed to people seven eight nine ten years old and that book would probably appeal to those people too and again we'll talk more about that later in the 1980s i don't know that the honeymooners were appealing to that age crowd so you weren't going to have that audience so you're going to have an audience of people between the ages of 16 and 30 probably reading this book in, in 1986. And I don't know that there's That's a way fair. of presenting yeah. it successfully.
0: Right. No, I get that. I get that. And, you know, and, 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 and weird as it sounds, because, you know, comic books began as comic strips. And you talked about the funny pages and, and all of that. It's actually kind of difficult. As, as we said to do humor well in this format, even though to some extent that's how the format started.
1: Well, but uh, you know, as we're talking about it, I'm thinking about it and I've been reading a lot uh, on Facebook, a lot of people have been presenting or there's certain pages that are presenting them, uh, old Farside comics, which would be you know, one mm-hmm. panel or Calvin and Hobbes strips, which are usually between three and six panels. And I think in the short form, humor actually plays much, much better yeah. in that in that venue uh, than it does in, the, in a long
0: form where you're trying to tell a whole story. Yeah, I read a lot, even even uh, to this day of the kitty books, because, boy, can you find those cheap? I mean, Archie's and even, even the Disney books and Bugs Bunny all of that, and in a lot of those cases, like you said, the one-page gag strips are, can often be funnier than the, you know, sort of five-page story, because often the five-page story builds to, a, builds to a punchline at the end. And so yeah, maybe, and- I, I, I'd rather have five one-pagers with five punchlines.
1: And a lot of times with those five one-pagers, they will present a continuing narrative through them, mm-hmm. but each one mm-hmm. is, a, is a page and a joke unto itself right right it doesn't it's not going to have that flow the story is going (laughs) to continue but it's not going to have a a flow where it's you know even throughout and then you hit the punchline it's going to be six panels punchline six panels punchline six panels punchline and somehow that works better yeah i think so i think so i i have been actually impressed again i have been reading because they've been posting them lately a lot of old calvin and Hobbes cartoons and uh or comic strips, and yeah. and I've I've been impressed with how funny some of them are, and and how how intelligent some of the humor is. Mm-hmm. Like when yeah. they show you know his parents and what they're going through, uh, it, it, it is surprisingly intelligent at, at times for a strip that's as funny as it is.
0: Or maybe I, that's why I, it's as, funny as it is. Yeah, I mean I I, I think part of the genius or uh, talent of, of of that strip is. It gets the kid, it gets Calvin's perspective so right on. I think it also gets the parents' perspective so right on. So I think exactly. that's why it's it, it 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 has worked for us for for, for thirty plus years. Yeah, you know, work. Um, no question. The, the the character we identify with might may be changing.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? Yeah, it's it's funny because now a lot of the times I'm seeing the father and thinking, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the head <laughs> uh so you want to you want to rate the honeymooners yeah. and i guess it's up to you you can rate each story individually or you can rate the book as a whole whatever you. Uh, I think, that, I think i think i'll put them together but
0: yeah i mean i guess i mean the cover i mean it literally does get the job done it does confirm that it's those honeymooners you know it's it's got the name honeymooners and then it's got the picture of them just in case you were wondering uh, who exactly it is I mean, the title is obviously well-known enough, at least uh, those of us who were, have a certain vintage, so didn't necessarily need that. It's different, but again, like we said, it's a photo cover and there's only so much you can do. I mean, it's a C plus. There's just there's not much art there to, to grade, uh, really. There's a little cityscape on the top third of the page and the Honeymooners logo, but... Um, Ah, uh, the interior art, like I said, you know it is it is tricky to do uh, humorous art, uh, especially based on like normal human characters, as opposed to like plastic man or something like that. When you have to stay not realistic, but within a reasonable expectation of what realistic might be, uh, I think that's tricky. The likenesses are good uh again and there are the necessary exaggerations pretty well i actually thought the art was was good enough it was the same artist in both stories so there's a consistency throughout the whole thing i'll actually give the interior art a b the story i thought they were clever in terms of the setups of the story good balance between like a sitcom silly premise um And close enough to believable actions. We didn't talk much about the first story. I kind of, I thought that one was, was, uh, uh, pretty clever. Um, I mean, you have to buy into the fact that a baseball fan wouldn't know if it was a home or away game. Okay. That's a premise that may be tricky to buy, but if you do, these guys are numbskulls. Uh, I thought the rest of it worked. Okay. Um, Again, I probably like that original story more than the TV adaptation. Actually, for whatever that signifies, again, probably B, B plus. So it's a it's a high B, uh, bordering on a on, on a B plus overall. I thought it was I thought it was actually even a little better than I expected. Maybe the lack of expectations helped. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I, again it may, it made me smile throughout. Maybe not laugh out loud. But I smiled uh, throughout it, and that is sort of the definition of a humor comic doing its job All
1: right. that's fair uh, I would have greatly preferred if they made this the same cover, except just changed the image to the same <laughs> image but but cartooned yeah I, you know I think you'd still know who it was and You'd still go, you know, you'd, if you were interested in it, you'd still be interested in it, and but it would be preferable to me. The artwork, I think the artwork is as good as you could do for this type of story. Uh, that's not to say I'm giving it an A. <laughs> uh, I'm no, giving it a B. I,
0: I think that's fair. Yeah, I, that, that, that's a fair comment.
1: But I don't, I don't think, I, I really don't see how you could get better than a B in, in this particular story, frankly. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's as good as you could do, but I can't, I just can't give an A on it. Story-wise, I do surprisingly like the first story better than the second. I thought it was more entertaining and it was more easily transferred in my mind to, or translated in my mind to the actual actors doing what's shown, mm-hmm. which is kind of surprising since the second one is a real story from the show. Uh, yeah, but just the same, I I, I could see some of the comedy to the, to the first one a little bit more. I don't think I ever seriously chuckled to speak of, uh, just the the scene when, when the actual real singer and piano player come, I, I picture in my mind that they would actually have Jackie Gleason and Connie playing both roles in Mm -hmm. in that scene. Mm -hmm. And, And I, and I found that to be kind of amusing. And then when they show Ralph actually belting out the song, uh, you know, I, I can picture Jackie Gleason's physicality there, uh, and 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 I found that somewhat amusing. Uh, the second one, again, the whole "yummy, yum, yum" part of it just kind of left me flat. Like I just, I just didn't think that was funny, um, yeah. which is part, you know, one of the biggest parts of the, of the story. Uh, you know, him wanting to add that line into the commercial that they're recording. So. Story-wise, I almost feel like, again, this is as good as you're going to do with this particular premise. <laughs> but, again, I'm, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to be generous by saying I'm going to give it a B. Uh, so, overall, I'll give the book a B-. minus. But, you know, I, I just, again, it's, it's, I normally give uh, some concession to the fact of saying on a book like this, it wasn't meant for me. But I think a honeymoon's yeah. book was bent for me. It,
0: actually, it <laughs> so, probably was bent. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, so I have to, I have to, you know, take away a little on that, and uh, you know, I'm going to give it That's the B minus. But you know, your your mileage may vary. Let's put it that way. So, so moving on, we're going to look at Jerry Lewis, or The Adventures of Jerry Lewis, number eighty six, featuring King Clonk, the Killer Gorilla, and the cover shows. King Clonk on climbing the Tower of Pizza uh, while there's, I guess, policemen in these little tiny planes coming and shooting at him. And Jerry Lewis is ordering uh, a 300 foot pizza with bananas on it uh, for King Clunk And he's kind of got a uh, smug look on his face, which is fitting. Uh, so the story opens in uh i guess in africa i can only imagine some some jungle where there's an expedition going and uh pt is leading it and he's looking for king clunk to be his uh you know his star attraction somehow jerry lewis is in the group of helpers that are there because he he managed to get there but can't get back uh anyway uh they, they meet up with a tribe where there's a medicine man who uh, gives Jerry this potion to make people like him. Jerry runs into Tarzan, uh, of all people, and then he goes off. He meets, uh, I guess, Stanley and Livingston. He also meets the Metro Goldwyn Mayor, uh, Lion, and then eventually he meets King Klonk, who is ready to crush him until the friend, friendship potion pours on him and then. King Clunk loves him Uh, and he's carrying Jerry around and eventually uh, Jerry gets away from him and PT comes over and somehow they manage to uh, subdue him and they're transporting him back to the States uh, with him being hung from a dirigible dirigible, or two dirigibles uh, with Jerry sitting on his belly Uh, and they're flying to home. When they get there, they have... Uh, news reports of how uh, King Clonk is uh, just all over the nation. Jerry is his caretaker, and he's shoveling bananas into his mouth, and blowing his nose, and they go through all of these different things where King Clonk is uh, being put on uh, display for people. And eventually, just to get, he, uh, they try to hypnotize him, but that actually has the opposite effect of what it should, and he breaks free. And uh, he's he's running wild, but Jerry is has been kind of sent off on his own, and they're looking for him because he's the only one that King Clunk liked. Uh, the police go out for reasons that I don't know in gorilla costumes to try and go after him. And long story short, Jerry Jerry comes over. The uh, King Clunk does not recognize him at first, puts him in a hot dog bun, and is going to eat him until he realizes who he is then he's kissing him and they send him back uh with a sail uh, to uh, go back to whatever country it was that he was in to begin with and again i do think that this one is very very dependent on your ability to kind of picture jerry lewis performing in these particular machinations mm-hmm. uh which when i was eight or 10 or whatever age this would have been geared towards, I thought Jerry Lewis was very, very funny. Uh, I don't really think the same way now. I'm not, you know, and I don't mean to be blasting him, uh, but his humor is is more meant for younger people, in my opinion. Uh, So I have to look at this book kind of with those eyes. And I think if you gave me this book, in, you know, when it first came out, or within say five to six years of when it first came out, I probably would have sat and read it and enjoyed the heck out of it, and probably would have read it several times. So, in that regard, I think it's a success. Giving it to a middle-aged yeah, you know, to, to an older man, I'm not so sure. You I know. I, I, uh, I, again, and,
0: and, you know
1: well, I was just going to mention that, you know, you gave me this and I said, I bagged it and boarded it and put it in my collection. And I did so not because I think, Oh, this is such a great story, but because it's kind of a collectible to me because of what it is. I don't have any Jerry Lewis yeah. comics and I thought it was just kind of cool to have. So for that reason, I wasn't going to just pass it on. I decided I'm going to keep this one and I appreciate it having been sent to me. Oh. What'd you think?
0: Oh, you're welcome. Well, again, you know, sort of, you know, cards on the table. I don't consider myself a, a big fan of uh, Jerry Lewis either. Um, you know, as, as opposed to the prior issue, I do have warm feelings towards Jackie Gleason and, and, and Art Carney. Um, I've read some Bob Hope, some of the Bob Hope comics. Um, again, Jerry Lewis is humor. Uh, not really, Not really necessarily my bag. But I was able to I, I know enough of the Jerry Lewis voice and cadence to have put the lines uh, uh, into that, uh, uh, like you said. I, I also think, just, just to step back and think about comics of this era, it's interesting to note that here in 1965, DC is still publishing this title, and they would for another five or six years. I want to say it went to 1971. You know, Marvel had already introduced tons of new ideas, new concepts, uh, new characters, the House of Ideas, and all that. A really, a new approach to comic books. And DC is still publishing Jerry Lewis. I just think that's kind of telling about how the two companies were viewing themselves and their readerships at the time.
1: Yeah, you know, I definitely you know, we've talked about that in the past, how Marvel grew in the Silver Age and changed the way comics were presented. And then that eventually led to the Bronze Age. Whereas DC almost came yet almost had to be dragged kicking and screaming yeah. from the Golden Age to the Silver Age. Although they, they actually heralded the Silver Age, I guess, with the introduction of, right. of the Barry Allen flesh. But they didn't progress from there and they still had stories that you'd kind of scratch your head and say you know where are they going with this or whatever and then in the 70s they only had flashes of the bronze age right. you know they they there were moments you know the neil adams Danny o'neill stuff showed us some some bronze age stuff you know the new team titans was bronze age stuff you know you'd occasionally see it in batman but for the most part there there were a lot of silver age concepts that carried through until you got to about 1980 or so. And then they finally said, okay, let's advance a little bit. And that was when they started taking artists and writers from Marvel.
0: Right. But, but I would still say, if you pick a random or a handful of random DC comics from 1982 or 1983, 84, you look at those and I can see why, not specifically crisis, but you can certainly see why something had to be done. You, you, you can see whether it's the Superboy stories or even bad. I mean, there, there, there was a lot of old fashioned stuff still happening there. I would probably argue the majority of it still in 83, 84, you know, 82. And they I mean, the Wonder Woman book was just boring and terrible at the time. And, and it, it it was not alone. Uh, you you can see that something needed to change I, I think in in dc
1: although you know there's certain areas that, there in the mid
0: 80s Yeah.
1: certain areas that, I, that i've that i picked up on that I, i've decided okay you know yeah i really want to get these i really want to get those i've in, in, you know for collecting purposes i've gone after a lot of the uh jack kirby fourth world stuff uh and, right. and i've pretty much gotten almost all of that at this point there's one or two issues I still have nice. to get but that's about it uh, but you know that and his stuff on Demon and uh, one, of, one of the things that I've started to pick up when I've found them I was going to say cheap but I don't know if it would fit your definition I'm saying you know two or three dollars each uh, is the Wonder Woman issues when he was in when she was in the white jumpsuit because I mm-hmm. no, I'm just right. get a kick out of right. those yeah. uh, but you know even though there's one or two issues where it's like, okay, you know, yeah, it's $2, $2, $80. Well, no, I'm not spending $80. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there there are definitely ones that fit the sweet spot for me that I've I've been looking to get. I, I, I'm almost done getting my issues of Commandee. Uh I think I need nice. two more of the later issues to fill that series out. So there are a lot of DC books that I've, you know, put on my collection, put into my collection. And they are from that era, and some of them are more advanced, and some of them not so much. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, there's there's some fun to be had there. But on a whole, I definitely agree that that company lagged behind with the sophistication of storytelling that Marvel did, which was why when I started collecting early in the 70s, Marvel was much more enticing to me. I couldn't understand at that time why anybody would choose DC. And, you know, in hindsight, you know, most of my friends are still – Bigger DC fans than Marvel, but maybe that's because most of them started in
0: the eighties. Yeah, could they Makes sense. I one of the things I liked about this comic, I I I, I mean, the reason I sent it to you was because I thought it was actually pretty funny. I did. I I I actually thought the high concept was was strong. The idea that the the premise it's let's tell the King Kong story. But put Jerry in the role of Thay Ray. And I just think that's a, that's a wild premise, and I think the script more or less delivers on that just completely wacky uh, premise, or at least more often than it, I think more hits than misses. And I just like the concept, and as I always say, it's not really a DC comic until a giant monkey shows up. So... <laughs> It's, Good on you there, comic book. Perfect. That's how you know well, DC,
1: DC you. had the giant giant ape thing down for science. <laughs> and and again, I do think that this book is geared for someone who is a fan of those Jerry Lewis movies, who is mm-hmm. probably somewhere in the eight to twelve year old range. I think twelve is probably right. pushing it, uh, mm-hmm. and I think it succeeds for that age. I think it's, you know, it's definitely, uh, you know, something that would appeal to someone who fits that that particular uh, definition. Now, I don't think you're going to find too many eight-year-olds who are Jerry Lewis fans now, but in 1968, I, you know, I, I remember them showing, uh, I think it was called That's My Boy, and it was with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Mm-hmm. Or you know, and, and it was you know, something like he was a college student and he was a nerd and Dean Martin was you know the sophisticated uh, college student and he was supposed to try and you know he, he Jerry's father paid him to mature him you know that kind of thing, uh, and I remember watching that and and cracking up laughing. Uh, I haven't seen it since then. I don't know that I would laugh mm-hmm. now, but at the time I thought it was hilarious. So if you if you handed me that comic at that at that age, whatever age I was when I saw that. I probably would have loved this,
0: mm-hmm. and the in the fact that it it most comedy, the kids' comedy comics. Again, I'm thinking of the Archies and the Bugs Bunnies. Scrooge would be an exception to what to what I'm about to say, but most of them did not try a 24 page, one full length story. Most would do six, eight, you know, you know, eight. A, a, a regular comic is four Archie stories. We yeah, said, the the the
1: your
0: yeah, the the Honeymooners was 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 two stories. You know this. So there's to me there's some credit in being able to take a premise and not stretch it out, but milk it uh, 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 productively for 22, 24 pages, whatever this was. And and again, I, I mean, you you have the King Kong movie as your template, so. That I,
1: I also think, though, you have the tool that they used of breaking it into chapters to right. cater to that attention span of a younger reader.
0: And almost, almost, I always, always
1: create different stories, you know?
0: And I, I, I don't always like, quote-unquote, politics in my comics, but I did like um, making fun of politicians in my comics. There's one point where when King Clunk is here in the U S and being, uh, you know, getting his, is getting his fame. There's a, there's a, a sign. So or they're, they're chanting clunk for Congress, clunk for Congress. I'm not saying I would vote for him. I'm not saying I wouldn't. Okay.
1: Yeah, and then, and then they have, I guess it's supposed to be Khrushchev. I'm not sure. <laughs> I promise you, my fellow countrymen, we will have an ape, Twice the, as big as, by, as the Americans by 1976.
0: <laughs> well, you've got the dance which, which race. Like, the space
1: things. race, a little bit, which yeah. would still be, you know, ne- neither, neither country had landed oh, on yeah.
0: the moon. Yeah. Yeah. In there in the mid 60s, yeah. Well,
1: this is 68. We didn't land on the moon until summer of 69. Okay. That's right. Right. So good.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
1: So, yeah, there's definitely some stuff. I was wondering, actually, as I was reading through it, uh, you know, uh, I guess it was the, uh, was it Huntley Brinkley? It was Chet Huntley, right. I Right, yes. And I have yep. Chet Finkley, yep. Finkley here. Uh, I'm not sure <laughs> if that's supposed to be maybe Dick Clark with the, uh... oh, actually, no, 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 there's the fashion yeah. guy. I'm not sure who that is, what designer that's supposed to be making. Clark yeah, there's
0: with. the one I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't, yeah, I, I, I couldn't make, make that one. Or
1: or who that politician like... is supposed
0: to be, right? But I like the dance craze. I thought that was fitting as well.
1: Yeah, the well and they did craze. have a dance called the monkey. Mm-hmm. Back in the sixties. So, you know, there there is some topical humor. Well, I'll give again. I I you know I don't want to blast this one for not being meant for a <laughs> an older gentleman. Or me. <laughs> you know, I, I, I prefer to, to, to see it for the audience that it's intended. And I, I think for the audience, it's intended, it's, it's a big hit. <laughs> I, I think it, it, it hits on all cylinders for that. I think the artwork does. I think the story does. I think it's got enough to keep a young kid interested. But it's not so sophisticated that they're going to be lost as to what's going on. There's certain jokes they're probably not going to get, you know, Stanley and Livingston things, uh, although they'll probably get Tarzan. I don't know if they'd get the Metro Golden Ray right. or Ty, uh, Lion, you know, but, but they're not so deep in the story that they're going to make you lose track of it anyway. Right. So I, I think it's, it's, again, for what it is, I think it works well.
0: Agree. I, I understand. I'm I think that the. I have to. <laughs> but I think that the art, you know, it's been comparing it to the first one, to the honeymooners, it's not quite as exaggerated. But there are elements of, of sort of cartoonishness both in Jerry and then also in the the sort of the, the head of the ex- expedition. He's also exaggerated. He's almost like a like a Hollywood, you know, sort of Hollywood mogul, a Hollywood producer sort of um um, vibe with his uh cigarette and the the cigarette holder but there's some exaggeration on him a little bit of exaggeration on king clonk and jerry just enough to get to get the theme across the guy who plays the leader i'm trying to remember the name of the actor now
1: uh he was Mm -hmm. the actor who played mr weatherby on the uh the Archie and I'm trying to actually, I think he did the voice. I don't think there was a live action version, but uh, I can't remember his name. And I did find it when we were doing the, uh, the prisoner. Uh, mm. There was an episode mm-hmm. where, where I, I, I had that actor as uh, my replacement for number two. Uh, mm-hmm. And I can't think of what his name is right now, uh, but that's who, who I'm picturing in that role. And I think, That's who who I think they are channeling in their drawings. So I guess uh, unless you have anything more, we could rate this. Go ahead. So again, again, reading this as best as I can through the eyes of an 8 to 12-year-old. I think the cover is fun. And if you're a Jerry Lewis fan, I think you're all over it. I'm going to say it's a solid B cover the story is actually fun to some extent, even to my my eyes as a parody of King Kong. Uh, And I think again, to an eight to 10 year old, I think frankly, honestly, I think the story hits on all cylinders for that age. I think it's an A for that age. And the artwork is very effective. I think it it captures (laughs) the way Jerry Lewis should look in such things. I think it gets the, uh, you know the the image of the ape, well done. I think the storytelling is good, so I'm going to say a B plus on the uh, on the art. So again, looking at it through the eyes of an eight to twelve year old, I think this is a solid B book.
0: Yeah, um, pretty much in line with that. Again, the the cover portrays what is in the comic, has a decent joke at the bottom of the page. Um, so yeah, B B B plus on the cover. Again, yeah, I thought the art was good. It was exaggerated just where it it needed to be um i use the comparison to say comic you know newspaper strips where you have some exaggeration of jerry's hair stands up straight when he's frightened you know that sort of thing um uh, and i like the expressions on, on on the big monkey uh so i love that and uh seriously i do love dc's love for big monkeys, okay. I, I am a sucker for that in any context, and I actually, like I said, I seriously like the premise of Jerry as Fay Ray in the King Kong story. It's it's a funny premise, and it is delivered pretty well most of the way through. I'd give the story, you know, B plus, um, maybe close to an A minus. So again, B, high B, uh, B plus. Again, I've read a number of similar comics i don't know that i've read any jerry lewis before maybe one or two but some bob hopes you know some of those similar dc humor celebrity books from the air. and this this um the the king kong hook in this one uh, may have made this one the best of that small batch that i've read or certainly one of the best um and in case it wasn't clear i love when dc comics have big monkeys in them i love it <laughs> And who could
1: blame you? All right. So that's going to do it for today. Thank you for coming on, Professor Allen. I always appreciate your company and appreciate having you on. Uh, why don't you tell oh,
0: everybody where you. they can find you? Well, I appreciate being appreciated, but I don't get enough of that in my day-to-day life. You know that? So thank Welcome to you. my world. Thank you. <laughs> so, yes, most of uh, our work can be found at the Relatively Geeky uh, podcast network over there. You can find the Quarter bin podcast, which every twenty-five episodes, which I do not think is enough, has Paul Spitero as a guest. We've got Doom Speak, we've got the brand new Alan's Eyes and Ear Show, we've got the Short Box Showcase, which Em and I uh, do together. Former guest on Back to the Bins as well. Um, so that is where you can find that is where you can find me. Thank you. And you
1: should all find him. So thank you everybody for listening and uh, come on back next week when we'll have something to talk about. Oh, you know what? I just forgot. <laughs> just I forgot. I didn't mention during this, the uh, Jerry Lewis story was written by Arnold Drake and penciled by Bob Oskner, Oxner. Excuse me. I just felt like I should say that and I forgot to before. So <laughs> I'll say it now, before just before I say bye-bye.
0: which you may find at www.2TrueFreaks.com. 2 True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the 2TrueFreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.